Greetings and welcome to another different church podcast. My name is Jarrett and I hope you are having an awesome day. Welcome to part two of our Jonah series and also the second podcast being released on our feed this week because last week I didn't do my job. That's right. I don't have any excuses. I just straight up didn't do what I was supposed to do. So lucky for you, that means you get two podcasts this week. This is the second in the Jonah series. So if you care about order, uh, go backwards and listen to the first one first. Or if you want to choose violence today, as the kids say, I guess just keep listening to this one. Um, Yeah, the first one has a little bit more of like historical context on the book. And this one, we're like diving into um, the text of Jonah a little bit more. So I hope you're doing awesome. Um, I want to say thank you again, as always, for listening to our podcast, for engaging with us on social media. Uh, If you've ever attended a service before, thank you so much for just being a part of what we're doing in any way. Uh, Seriously, it it means everything to us. Um, You rock. Uh, Only thing I want to make sure you are aware of right now is we are in the middle of uh, small group season. Uh, We have got, for the first time ever, we've got two different groups in St. Pete, so that's pretty awesome. We've got a group in Tampa, and we've got a virtual group. It is totally, like, come whenever you can. You don't have to come every week, so if you've missed the first couple weeks but you still want to sign up, uh, just let us know, and you can join any of those groups. All right, uh, let's uh, go ahead and talk about Jonah uh, after we listen to a terrible pun from Hannah. Let's dive in. Nobody got my joke. (sighs) Dive in, Jonah. Come on. Ha, ha, ha. Your laughter means nothing to me. (laughs) Jonah 1, 1 through 3 says this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it, because I have seen how wicked its people are. But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. Now, the first sentence is, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. This is a very common phrase in the Old Testament, okay? This is how most of the stories of the prophets start. In all of these stories, once the word of the Lord, once the word of Yahweh comes to the prophet, they get up and do what he says in shocking fashion. Okay, so here's a dramatic retelling of three of the prophet stories in the Old Testament. The word of the Lord came to the prophet Hosea. God, go marry someone who will absolutely cheat on you so that you can take her back and then your whole life will be an object lesson about how I am faithful to that terrible country, Israel. Hosea, sure thing, God, right away. (laughs) The word of the Lord comes to the prophet Elijah. God, there's severe drought in the land. Go present yourself to King Ahab and his wife Jezebel who want to kill you And then once you do that, I'll send some rain on the land. Elijah, sure thing, God, right away. (laughs) This is the weirdest one. The word of the Lord comes to the prophet Ezekiel. God, go lay on one side of your body for longer than a year, and then lay on the other side of your body for about a month. And that will show those sinful Israelites what for. (laughs) Ezekiel, sure thing, right away, God. God, oh, and as you're lying there, I would like you to bake bread over human poop and make sure lots of people see you do it. Ezekiel, um, that might be taking things a far, a little far. 
God, I was just seeing what I could get away with. You got me. Ezekiel, okay, good, so no poop then. God, oh no, definitely still poop, just not human poop. You can use animal poop. (laughs) Bake your bread. These are all real stories in the Bible. I will happily give you references if you would like to look them up yourself, okay? I will fight anyone who says the Bible is boring. (laughs) Also, these poor prophets. Does anyone want to be a prophet after reading that? No, it's a bad gig. (laughs) What's the point? Okay, so if you are an Israelite and you are familiar with what the prophets do, then you are expecting Jonah's story to go the way of everyone else's, right? The prophet gets up and says, sure thing, God, right away, God, and then goes to Nineveh. Except the author tells us something shocking. Jonah does, in fact, get up, but not to obey God, to run away from God. Now, as modern readers, we're just like, cool. No, to the ancient Israelites, this would have been like a huge deal. A prophet of God who refuses to do what God wants. Maybe this is not a boring run-of-the-mill prophet story. So instead of heading to Nineveh, where God told him to go, Jonah goes to Tarshish. I think I have a photo. Do I have a photo? Did I put a photo? (laughs) I did! I wish I had a, I should get my professorial laser pointer out and be like, let's oh, see here, Tarshish. <laughs> okay, so you can't really see because of the lights. But basically, Jonah is like Israel-ish, modern-day Israel. He's supposed to go a few hundred miles to Nineveh. Instead, he goes to Tarshish, which is like the tip, bottom tip of Spain slash Portugal. Like literally the furthest point you could get away from Israel without going into the Atlantic Ocean. The farthest place he could possibly go to get away from God. That's where he's going. So he trots himself down to a coastal town called Joppa, and he books himself a passage on the ship to sail off into the sunset away from God, and his life will be just fine, right? So when we get to Joppa, we're introduced to these supporting characters, the sailors, and if you've read any ancient literature, you know that sailors are bad guys. We're not supposed to like them. They're terrible people. They're just like rough all around. They do like they're like violent and they, the Bible and all kinds of other literature is like, and they fornicate, like just all over the place, apparently. Um, they, and, and especially for these sailors, it says they're pagans, which means they're not even Israelite sailors. They're not even our sailors. <laughs> they're other people's terrible people. Okay, so Jonah gets on this boat Marry a band of sailors. He promptly hops on their boat. He finds himself in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea on his way to get away from God. And then this is where the story gets a little wild. And I mean wild quite literally because this is what happens. This is Jonah 1. Then Yahweh sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid. Everyone cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. And the captain went to him and said, how are you sleeping right now? What's wrong with you? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Now, let's just pause for a moment on hyperbole personification. Okay, so hyperbole is exaggeration for effect. Personification is like giving human characteristics to non-human things. The author of Jonah uses both of them a lot. We talked last week, like everything in Jonah is big or great. 
The word is used so many times in these four tiny chapters. For example, Nineveh was a great city. And like our English translations don't, they were like, this is redundant. So we're gonna change these words. So uh, in 1.4, it says, Yahweh hurled a great wind and it caused a great storm. And the NIV was like, mm, a violent storm. The sailors became greatly afraid. The NIV translates that as terrified. Yahweh appointed a great fish. The NIV translate that as huge. <laughs> Jonah rejoiced over his plant with great joy. Now, personification. In verse 5, it says the ship threatened to break up. That's not like poetic language. That is, the way this is written is to show us that the ship is afraid of Yahweh. The ship would rather disintegrate than face Yahweh. Okay, and then a few verses later, the sea stops its rage. It stops its war against the boat. Jonah gets tossed. Peace treaty is signed. Everybody's fine. So Jonah and the sailors and Yahweh are in the middle of a fight. It's Yahweh and the sea against Jonah. And the poor sailors, they're just like, what did I do? Why am I here? This is the worst storm I've ever seen. They're all praying to their own gods. And this detail is important because remember, they're not Israelites. They're pagans. They're not Yahweh worshipers. So Jonah is sleeping like a babe below deck, and he gets woken up by the captain screaming in his face, what is wrong with you that you are sleeping right now? Pray to your God, and perhaps he won't kill us. Please do something. Now, why is it important that everyone pray to their own God? Because they had no way of knowing which God was mad at them. Everyone had their own, and they're like, well, I mean, at least if you ask, they might be like, oh, yes, this God is that, ah, oh, you have repented, and I shall not kill everyone because of you. So every sailor had to pray to their own God, and then it didn't work. <laughs> their prayers did not work. The storm gets crazier. Everyone is certain to die, and so they, they start casting lots, which is like this ancient way of determining God's will, kind of like drawing straws or rolling dice. And the lot falls on Jonah, and he finally is like, it's my fault. It is me. I was trying to run away from God, Yahweh, the God who created heaven and earth and the sea. Now, finding out that Jonah's God created the sea made the sailors very mad. They were like, uh, excuse me, you idiot. Why would you think that you could run away on the sea from the God who created the sea? You have endangered our lives. And Jonah's like, well, just toss me into the sea. Then the storm will stop. And we might expect these godless pagan sailors to be like, yes, jump at the chance of murder, right? But no. And it's Jonah's fault they're caught in the middle of the storm. And we know that sailors are all violent, terrible humans. This is what the story has set us up to believe, right? They've lost all their cargo. Their lives are endangered. And instead, what they do is they try to row back to shore. They don't want to kill Jonah. They don't want to toss him overboard. And that's kind of extraordinary because according to Jonah, when you disobey God, you die. That's his belief. But the sailors disagree, and they try to save Jonah's life. Despite their best efforts, however, they do not win. And it's like very clearly the ship is going to go down. So they finally agree 
to toss Jonah overboard. But only after praying to Yahweh and saying, please forgive us in advance. We do not want to do this. It's literally the only hope of survival for us. And he's agreeing to it, so don't blame us. So Jonah gets dumped, and the seas calm down. And our English translations, like, they don't do justice to it because there's this progression. So when the storm first comes, the sailors are afraid, and they pray. And then when they hear who Jonah's God is, they are greatly afraid. And then when they finally toss Jonah overboard and the sea stops, the storm stops, they are even more greatly afraid. It's progression. And then they make these vows and sacrifices to Yahweh. What's the point? Is it that Yahweh is nasty and vindictive and just wants to kill anyone who crosses him? No. The point, kind of like the story of the Good Samaritan that James talked about a couple of weeks ago, is to flip everything upside down, to flip everything on its head. How can it be that the Jew, Jonah, the prophet of God, Jonah, is acting very non-Jewish? How can it be that the one who knows God is running away from God? And even further, how can it be that the pagan, Gentile, terrible, awful, horrible people, the sailors, are acting as the true worshipers of God? It's a story meant to make people question everything they know is true. It certainly would have done so for its ancient readers. They would have been like, okay, first of all, Jonah did not do what he was supposed to do. And then these sailors... Are they're acting more like Christians than Christians? It's definitely not applicable to our lives. Now, speaking of questioning things we accept is true, especially if the Jonah story is familiar to you, especially if the Veggie Tales version is familiar to you. Let's talk about what happens after Jonah gets tossed overboard. Jonah 1.16 says, Now, the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. I have a question. When did Jonah get swallowed? Because the conventional version is Jonah gets yeeted and the fish is like, gulp. And then they just swim around for three days while Jonah finally gets his act together. And then like at the end of the third day, Jonah's like, ah, yes, I pray to God. Sorry. And then God's like, okay, cool. And then the fish blurps him back up on the beach. When did Jonah get swallowed? And more questions. Why did it take three days and three nights? That's an awful long time for someone to repent and say a prayer that takes up like two paragraphs. How did Jonah get seaweed wrapped around his head if he was in a fish the whole time? And third, why did the fish have a sex change? We'll start with this exchange, because <laughs> I know that's our favorite question. When Yahweh appoints this huge fish in Jonah 1.17, it's a male fish. But when Jonah prays from the belly of the fish in chapter 2, it is a female fish. Is this a typo? I, I mean, it's possible it's a typo. But generally, things are not in the Bible by accident, okay? Especially not in this book it's much more probable that this is a literary device meant to reinforce Jonah's salvation. Jonah is being spiritually reborn. And especially from the ancient point of view, a male fish can't birth anything. 
Jonah 2.3 says, you hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the sea. The currents swirled around me. Your waves and breakers swept over me. The water threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains, I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought me up from the pit. I think the seaweed should give us pause. If Jonah is in the belly of the fish for three days, for the entire ordeal, he gets tossed and immediately gulped. How did he get seaweed wrapped around his head? Was he just like tumbling around inside the belly of a fish like a washing machine? Just Jonah and all the fishes partially eating food and seaweed? Just... And Jonah's like, please, God, help me. I am sorry. The whole time. <laughs> or is this a clue for us to think more deeply about this? When did Jonah get swallowed? I'm gonna obviously argue not immediately. <laughs> um, <laughs> the fish only comes after Jonah has sunk. Why three days and three nights? If you are drowning and God sends a fish to rescue you, does it really take you three days to say, sorry? Or is this another clue? Now we know from other ancient literature that the phrase three days and three nights is a common way of saying a long journey. Much like when my husband is like, it's been a minute. What he means is some vague, undefined amount of time between several months and 10 years. <laughs> Figure out which one he's talking about, because he knows, but you don't. <laughs> In the Bible, we have examples of this for Abraham and Moses. The phrase is not just to use like, it's not used to describe just aimless passing of time. In other words, it is very unlikely that the fish was just swimming around for three days waiting for Jonah to finally repent so it could then spit him out. Like, oh, I have to carry this stupid guy. <laughs> oh, he finally said sorry. <laughs> no, that's not how it goes. It's much more likely that this phrase is supposed to tip us off to this dangerous, like, existential journey that Jonah is on. Now, there is a Sumerian tale called The Descent of Inanna, which, who cares? Like, we, we're, like we live in 2022. We don't know anything about this person. But the ancient Israelites would have known this was a very common story, much like any of the Disney stories that we hear today. It was about this goddess who plans to take a trip to the underworld to visit her sister. And as you might imagine, it is a dangerous trip anytime you choose to visit the underworld or don't choose. And so she sets this plan that if she has not returned after three days and three nights, he has to call on the high gods for help. And the story is a terrible ending. Her sister, like, murders her. Don't look it up. Um, what's the point? The point is, according to that tale and many others, it takes three days and three nights to get to or from the underworld. And in an interesting parallel in the New Testament, in the Gospels, Jesus also rises from the dead on the third day and explicitly correlates his journey. So in Matthew, Jesus says, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Does that mean literally? Or does that mean that the phrase Jonah remained in this fish for three days and three nights could actually be telling us where Jonah went, where Jonah had been? Because it suggests that he went on this terrifying journey to the realm of the dead, or as it's called in Hebrew, Sheol, or in Greek, Hades. Sheol is like the subterranean place where people go when they die. It's a very vague, undefined concept in the Old Testament. 
as is the idea of the afterlife in general. It's pretty undefined in the Old Testament, but by the time of Jesus, am I doing something to this mic? <laughs> Just so powerful, my words. <laughs> by the time of Jesus, the concept of Sheol had developed much more concretely. It was then understood to be this place where the wicked went after they died, a place to be avoided, if at all possible. You don't want to go there. And it seems that Jonah descends down into the realm of the dead after being thrown overboard, and his own words support this in chapter 2 because he says, from deep in the realm of the dead, I cried for help. From deep in Sheol, I cried for help. And the fish that comes to rescue Jonah is actually the vehicle of God's salvation. And the three days and three nights signifies their journey back from the dead into the land of the living. And Jonah gets put on dry land, and the rescue mission is complete. So here's a fresh reading of Jonah's story. Not as a story about a grown man throwing a temper tantrum and trying to run away from God, but actually a story about God's deep concern for all and God's incredible ability to reach even those who are literally too far gone. Sailors heave Jonah overboard. The sea stops raging. Jonah begins the slow descent down into the bottom of the ocean. The weight of his decisions mirroring the weight of the water as it presses him down. The waves come crashing and they push him down even further. Down, down into the heart of the seas, down into the chaotic and ancient waters of the great deep the deep, the same deep, the same word that is used at the beginning of creation in Genesis with the darkness and the spirit of God hovering above. The chaos that God tamed to create the world. This great chaos, this great deep engulfed Jonah closes over him and he sinks and he sinks and he sinks down to the very bottom of the created world to the roots of the mountains that hold the earth in place. He is crushed by the deepest parts of the untamed ocean. And he is about to get his wish to run away from God. The bars of creation have shut him out. The bars of death have shut him in forever because nobody comes back from the realm of the dead. But then God then God sends a fish to save Jonah from the clenched fist of death, to pry open the gates of the realm of the dead, and swallows Jonah and carries him up, up, up for three days and three nights, up from the chaos, the untamed, uncreated world, up to the orderly, creative world. And over the next three days and three nights, on this long journey home, Jonah can't help but call out to God in prayer and thanksgiving. Jonah acknowledges something unthought of, unheard of in that time, was that even from the edges of creation, even from the realm of the dead, even from the place that you cannot come back from, his prayers can still be heard by God. And he makes vows and promises to Yahweh who overcomes death and tames the great deep, the great chaos. And then Yahweh commands the fish to vomit Jonah out onto dry land. 
the same word, the same dry land we find in Genesis at the beginning of creation. Jonah himself is a new creation. He has been resurrected. He has been reborn. There's a line in the play, The Count of Monte Cristo, where one of the characters is like, I don't believe in God. And the abbot says back, it doesn't matter. God believes in you. <laughs>